waste to energy is a broad term for so many different types of technologies. And we strongly believe there is no one-stop shop for the waste problem. It's going to take all of the technologies that are out there today. And we're all complementary to one another. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about waste to energy, specifically creating low sulfur diesel from discarded plastic. Ironically, the plastic used to make this diesel comes from the automotive industry, so these would-be vehicles will be seeing the open road after all. We've discussed waste to energy in the past. In a previous episode, it was a path to energy for one of the poorest places on Earth. But for the developed world, it just makes sense to use as much of our resources for productivity than watching it decompose over hundreds of years. I was also surprised by a statistic today's guest pointed out. You'd think landfills are mostly made up of the refuge we drop off at curbs every Wednesday, but the truth is is that the trash we throw out, municipal solid waste, is as little as 3% of the total waste in the U.S. Industrial waste, like the kind our guest has been approached to address, makes up much more of the total. Regardless, we could be doing better. It takes 400 years for plastic to degrade in a landfill. In six decades of the plastic age, we've accumulated over 8 billion metric tons of the stuff, and about 6 billion tons is not recycled. Our guests can make about 250 gallons of diesel for every metric ton of plastic. That would be enough to satisfy nearly 10 years of global demand. You get the idea. So, where is this company located? California? Europe? Texas? Nope. Yep, this work is being done in the heart of Dixie. And anyone who's ever been down I-20 knows that Alabama is making a lot of cars. It's now the fifth largest state for auto manufacturing. Its Hyundai plant in Montgomery is the third largest in the nation. And last year, North Carolina lost out to Alabama on a huge opportunity to build Toyota Corollas. That facility, $1.5 billion and 4,000 jobs, is going to Huntsville. Congrats. Car parts for diesel reminded me of that Blondie song, Rapture. Instead of a man from Mars, it's a paralysis machine in Alabama that's about to change the landscape. Fun fact, this was the first ever number one song featuring rap lyrics, and instead of an MC from Brooklyn, it was sung by Debbie Harry, a suburban kid from New Jersey. And much like her, this technology is being brought to you by an enterprising female with an atypical background. Let's meet her. Our guest today is Jessica Finley, co-founder and CEO of NeoWaste, a waste-to-energy startup based outside of Birmingham, Alabama. I'd been wanting to do another waste-to-energy episode, and when I saw an article on my LinkedIn feed about Jessica and NeoWaste winning a prize from the Alabama Launchpad, I figured there might be something there. Jessica was a political science major, and like me, she's found her way to the energy industry through a path that did not include the STEM fields. And I think that's great, because it adds a lot of diversity of ideas out there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jessica Findlay. 
Jessica Finley, co-founder and CEO of NeoWaste. And Jessica, first things first, how does a political science major found a waste diesel company? <laughs> well, I get that question a lot, as you can imagine. The short answer is by way of economic development grant writing. My very first job out of college was grant writing for a small city outside of Birmingham. And I was assigned to work with a tire recycling company that was trying to raise money for a tire shredder. And I learned everything there was to know about tire recycling. From there, learned of these technologies that convert tire shred into fuel. And that initiated my interest in the waste to fuel sector. But essentially, political science opened one door, which opened another until I found myself convincing a multinational waste to fuel company that they needed to add this new technology called polycrack technology into their portfolio. And I spent nearly a decade developing opportunities to deploy that technology, polycrack, in 47 international markets. But we were really focused on municipal solid waste streams. It wasn't until I started having conversations with folks here in Alabama about the challenges of finding alternatives to landfilling and recycling that we started focusing on opportunities to deploy the technology on a smaller scale outside of the realm of municipal solid waste. Right. You said polycrack, but I love playing the guess the technology game. I'm just going to throw this out there. I assume you're gasifying plastic into syngas followed by Fischer-Trope to produce diesel. Is it anywhere near that or is it completely different? I think most plastic to fuel technologies are similar. Polycrack technology can be broadly classified as a thermal cracking process similar to pyrolysis, but with a few distinct differentiations. We operate at less than 450 degrees Celsius. Most others are in excess of 600 degrees. We have a very high moisture tolerance, whereas most other technologies out there require a significant drying process. That's pretty typical of a lot of gasification technologies, right? Like don't Correct. like moisture. They're also exactly. real temperamental if you're throwing lots of different kinds of things at them. So that's one of the other beautiful things about polycrack is that we are not limited to a single type of waste. Polycrack was designed to manage municipal solid waste in India. It has to be robust enough to take anything. Any material with hydrogen and carbon can be converted into fuel. Of course, certain materials yield more fuel than others, but the fact that the system can tolerate any material means that we don't have to separate it before it's processed. For Neo Waste's first commercial scale plant, we are focusing on plastic feedstock, mainly because we get the highest yields from that, and because we were actually formed to address the growing waste disposal needs of Alabama's automotive manufacturers and their suppliers in light of their zero landfill targets and the current recycling crisis and people moving away from incineration, we launched to be able to address those waste disposal needs. And the number one waste stream coming out of most of these automotive manufacturing facilities is plastic. Lucky for us, we get the highest yields from that. But if we're looking at non-conforming parts and other things like that, that are not just plastic, and you may have leather, glass, metal, you know, fabric, various different things, but that's one reason why polycrack is so suited to this is because we don't have to separate all those individual components like a typical recycler would have to do. Right. And about separating the garbage, I guess the simplest solution would be you're taking a lot of plastic that has already been pre-sorted, but you're not having to sort the plastic out of garbage. Most of the time, by the time you get it, it's been sorted, right? Correct. Yes. Not having to sort it significantly reduces our operating costs and feedstock preparation costs and things like that. But again, even if it were not delivered 
sorted, the system could still handle it with no problem. But for our first commercial scale, this is essentially low-hanging fruit. We have a really strong partnership with a large recycling company that will be supplying our feedstock for the first commercial facility. They are already receiving various streams and then giving us what they're unable to recycle or would otherwise have to send to a landfill. So the process, is it only making diesel or is it making other fuels? Only diesel. Some of the other technologies out there produce furnace oil and some other fractions, but ours is a consistent low sulfur diesel fuel. We also produce a carbon, which is a really good free-flowing, fine powdered carbon that we can briquette and sell as solid fuel. And we're looking at other applications for industrial cleaning and water filtration and things like that. So you're making all this diesel. I think some people are a little confused about how it works when you make diesel as opposed to someone like an Exxon. So are you working through a broker to offload all of this diesel that you're making? I cannot tell you how naive I was in the <laughs> beginning of the journey about the complexities involved in getting fuel into the supply chain. The challenges with selling the fuel product has been one of the major impediments to the commercialization of wasted fuel technologies across the board. We are not at this time using a broker. We may consider that option later once our volumes are higher, but we currently have a letter of interest with Sunoco to purchase our fuel. Because we're producing it, our operating costs are significantly low and we're able to produce a gallon for well under a dollar, whether we charge for the feedstock or we count as a cost. And in some cases, just out of the spirit of partnership and collaboration with our feedstock supplier, we are able to pay for the feedstock and still have a significant margin. And I've heard a lot of people say, if you sell the fuel, you'll get crushed by Exxon, et cetera. Can you explain why it's not like that, where someone coming in trying to create fuel and, and put it on the market isn't going to get intimidation by super major companies? <laughs> There's a couple of reasons. One is right now, anyways, plastic to fuel or other waste to fuel companies, volumes are such a fraction of what these larger oil and gas companies are dealing with. It's literally a drop in the barrel. A lot of these technologies are very limited in the amount and type of material they can take. But there is an interesting trend developing. There seem to be collaborations between the plastic fuel companies and these larger oil and gas companies. I think there was an announcement earlier this year that, call it a competitor, I feel like we're all really collaborative, had an offtake agreement with BP. And so now we're working towards that with Sunoco. We expect that we will be selling all of our fuel to them. And it's cheaper for them to get it from us than it even is to get it from the pipeline. Once you pay the Platts pricing plus the pipeline fee and storage fee and the other fees involved with getting the fuel out of the pipeline, we can price ours at a greatly reduced price. Right. Let's break that down a little bit. Tell us about the economics of selling diesel. You say you're not using a broker right now, so there's no broker fee. You make the diesel, then how does it get to market? So the fuel as it comes out of the system is a low sulfur diesel, but you wouldn't put it directly into a vehicle. They are taking our fuel and processing it further. So the way the economics work on that, Platts pricing is the industry standard pricing for diesel. You buy on Platts and you sell on the rack. We took that Platts pricing and said, okay, we're not going to get the Platts price for this because it requires a little bit more processing. We're going to have the Platts pricing minus some differentials to account for the additional processing 
testing, also transportation and other things that go into the cost of getting it to a product that can be distributed through the standard channels, gas stations and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of that before. Either. <laughs> this was very new to me also. A big learning experience, right. Jessica, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times. There are dozens of different or superior, quote unquote, ways to energy companies or technologies out there. What do you think sets you guys apart? There are so many technologies out there and waste to energy is a broad term for so many different types of technologies. We are not an incineration plant. We're not producing electricity. Those serve a purpose and we strongly believe there is no one-stop shop for the waste problem that we have in the world. It's going to take all of the technologies that are out there today to even begin to address this problem. And we're all complementary to one another. I think a lot of people have great technologies that could change the world, but without the right business model, how are you going to make money and pay back like what it costs to build this thing and operate this thing? I think a lot of companies have fallen short. We just came out of a really great pitch competition called Alabama Launchpad. The biggest takeaway for us through this process was focusing on a very specific application the technology to a very specific problem and having specific customers identified. We're starting where we feel confident that we can get a quick win where we can show, okay, here's just our entry point. And without the focus of that, it's really hard to put the business model together. And look, and these things can be insanely profitable too. So you don't need to be the largest facility on the face of the earth, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. these things are highly profitable on a standalone basis on the small scale. And individual waste generators, they want to know that someone's going to pick up their garbage or their waste streams and charge them a fair rate. And so if we can charge them less than what they're being charged now to take to the landfill, we can charge them less than the recycling company that's going to come and pick it up. It's a win-win for everyone. And it doesn't always have to happen on the large grand scale like a lot of people think. I was thinking about this. You said that sometimes you're paying them or they're paying you to take mm -hmm. their waste away. The people who supply you plastics, who is whose client? Like who's the client and who's the vendor in that dynamic? Exactly. Because it's a little confusing, isn't it? And we had a really hard time people ask us, who is your customer? And it's hard for us to claim anyone as a customer because they're partners. They mm -hmm. are our feedstock supplier. They are a customer one day and the next day we may be their customer, depending on who's exchanging the funds. That's something that we've enjoyed explaining to people. Our customers are our partners. Yeah. I think that's one reason we've been so successful in securing the feedstock and offtake arrangements because we're all working together and it was a matter of figuring out what works for everyone. Any issues with the supply that you're getting in terms of it being steady because the last waste energy company, the guy was taking pig waste here in North Carolina and he was like, look, I better have a very steady stream of pig bleep. Yeah. <laughs> so I assume a steady supply of plastic, even in your early days, are you feeling like you're still having some challenges making sure you keep feeding the beast? We have not faced that as a challenge. Granted, we don't expect to begin our commercial operation until the end of 2019, if all things go accordingly, which everyone keeps telling me, twice as expensive, twice as long, twice as much hair you're going to pull out than you think you will. So no, we have not faced that. In fact, since we announced our Alabama launch pad, we've had people calling us from all over the country asking when we can take their plastic. And even the plastics recycling company that we're partnered with, they currently have more plastic to give us than we are even designed 
trying to take for our first commercial scale facility. We're even thinking, man, do we need to get a warehouse and start saving this stuff? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe we'll become a plastic broker too. I have no idea, but. Never be the person warehousing the stuff. I think that's always <laughs> been the first lesson from business school, right? Hey, Jessica, let's talk about something that's a little far away from Alabama. That great Pacific garbage patch we all hear about that's in the ocean. I'm sure you have some thoughts about maybe even a solution for that. That's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, it is crazy. It's one of the biggest devastations of our time. I will say that it's the growing public awareness that have led manufacturers and other corporations to set these zero landfill targets and other sustainability goals. Polycrack technology, neo-waste is the answer. We were made for this market moment. So what do you think that business model would be? And I'm kind of imagining something like you put a offshore oil rig in the middle of the Pacific and you basically just trawl and produce right there, right? That is one option. There are lots of people out there right now, solutions to collect the plastics. And there's another plastic to fuel company here in the U.S. that I believe already has a small system on a boat collecting plastic and converting it right then. And we would love to be a part of that. It's going to take a little bit of all the technologies coming together to make a dent in the problem. But we would love to put one of our, maybe like a one ton per day portable unit on a barge and go out and skim up plastics. And then you process them right there and you use the fuel to power the barge. I think everyone understood the environmental benefit, but it never quite made economic sense. And now it's all coming together to make a great business model. Yeah. And I'm thinking the enticing way to look at something like that is, yes, it's tragic. Yes, there's a lot of garbage in the Pacific, but look at all that free fuel out there. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I pass, you know, you see tires on the side of the road. I'm like, perfect feedstock right there. There you go. And Jessica, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was you're in Alabama, which I love because all my guests are either from California, Texas, or here in the Carolinas, or Europe. (laughs) So what does it mean to be innovating there in Alabama as opposed to more of a traditional tech center? Well, I don't want to spill the beans. I don't want to bring too much attention to it, but Alabama is a burgeoning center of innovation. We have a really strong ecosystem of research institutions and investors and other agencies that are all working to cultivate a strong basis for growing businesses here. And I think Alabama is kind of under the radar, which has been a benefit. People aren't looking here for their competitors. In the plastic to fuel and waste to fuel space, there's not a lot happening in the Southeast. And Alabama is kind of the epicenter of the Southeast. And with regard to our focus on the automotive manufacturing industry, Alabama is the place where it's at right now. This is where all the foreign automotive manufacturers are deciding to put their U.S. manufacturing bases. You're from Alabama, right? I am. Born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) It's fun to be able to do this close to home. One of the other things, Jessica, I'm excited about is I've probably spoken to more Toms and Johns than female guests, so I appreciate you taking your time. Let's talk a little bit about diversity. Do you think the energy industry at large is getting more diverse, and what do you think we could do to speed that up? Well, I think all industries are becoming more diverse. I started in the waste-to-fuel business in 2009. I probably wasn't in another meeting with a woman until a few years in easily, not just from people within the industry, but even the feedstock suppliers, the off-takers, the investors, the environmental people, everyone that you're working with. So much male domination there. But lately, yeah, women are popping up all over the place. Someone who I admire is the founder of Renewology, and that's another plastic-to-fuel company. When I saw, here's a woman running this company. I believe she's the one who developed the technology for it and all. It just makes you feel, okay, there's women out here. We can do this. You know, it's not just me anymore. But I will say, I don't think it's been an impediment that there haven't been other women, but it's great to finally start seeing other women at the table for sure. And of course, there's the other diversity, which is the non-STEM diversity, kind of going back to you being a poli-sci major. I'm a communications guy. I do transmission projects. 
you don't always have to be in the STEM field to be doing energy technology. I think that's also an encouraging thing as well. Yeah, I would have never thought in a million years that when I started college studying political science that I would be working in the waste of fuel business, but it worked out that way. And I can't imagine doing anything differently at this point. Exciting stuff. Jessica, you're a new company. You're about to go commercial. That's super exciting. Tell us what you've done in your case to help secure funding. That's a huge challenge for everybody, right? Yes. I mentioned earlier that we received $100,000 grant to commission our pilot plant. Once we run that for a few months, you qualify the specific feedstock that we'll be using and to make sure that all the fuel meets acceptance standards. Once we have some operating data at the commercial scale, I think that we'll be rolling these out pretty quickly. Jessica, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. First one is natural gas. Probably going to keep growing before it goes away. We haven't even seen the height of it yet, I don't think. Crude oil. Here for the long term. Nuclear. We need to be doing more around nuclear. Coal. That's on its way out. Wind. <sighs> no comment. Solar. We need more of it. More investment is needed. Biofuels. Coming fast on the horizon. And I'll do a subcategory because you're kind of a biofuel in a way. Plastic to diesel, your technology. I think it's the ultimate solution. Hydroelectric. Much needed. Keep it coming. Yep. Geothermal. We've only seen the beginning of that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that too. Energy storage. Also have only seen the beginning of that. We're going to be able to store energy in ways that people haven't even thought of yet. Electric vehicles. They will be displacing fuel-powered vehicles. Energy efficiency. It's here. It's happening. We're getting there. <laughs> and then nuclear fusion. That's over my head. And back to the non-STEM. I know this technology field, but nuclear fusion, that's just out of the realm of <laughs> what I understand. <laughs> All right. Jessica Finley, Neowais, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay, so much for having us. This has been wonderful. That was Jessica Finley, co-founder and CEO of NeoWaste, an Alabama-based waste-to-energy startup. I want to thank Jessica for her time and wish her and her co-founder, Fernando Valentin, as they start up their pilot plant later this year. Our guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to give us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 53. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how the best home for reducing carbon emissions and long-term sustainability may reside in the oceans. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>